0: Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman.
1: And I am Louise
0: Palanker. We're here to get you through quarantine and beyond. With <laughs> entertainment ideas, whether they be books or movies or TV shows, everything from documentaries to deep state dating services. You'll find something you like right here. Plus, we get to talk to interesting people like our guest today, who's been a friend of mine for many years. Nobody. Knows the entertainment business and the people in it better than he does. He's a freelance writer, an author, a literary agent, a former Burbank City mayor, David Lorell. Can't wait to talk to David. But Wheezy, first, what do you have for us to learn about this week?
1: Well, um, you know, we've all been spending our pandemic swapping viewing tips via Zoom with our friends and family. And the conversations usually begin with, oh, have you seen that show? I, I think it's called... The way forward or a place in the life of us. (laughs) And I just think in these difficult times of COVID and streaming, they should really just call every movie what it is, like Meryl Streep on a ship. Then you can find it. Or
0: George Clooney in space. Yeah, they're really ambiguous. This is us is too ambiguous. It's
1: really, it's just like a collection of words. Okay. So (laughs) I watched the one they are calling, Let Them All Talk. And it's from Steven Soderbergh, and it's starring Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, and Diane Weist. It tells the story of a famous author who is about to receive a prestigious award in England, and she cannot fly. And so her publisher books her on the Queen Mary for a transatlantic voyage. In the hopes of resolving age-old conflicts. she brings two dear and conflicted friends, Diane Weist and Candace Bergen, and her devoted nephew, played by the kid who is in all the movies with a kid, Lucas Hedges, <laughs> and thus Meryl Streep on a ship. I love this movie. It's got a quiet, thoughtful tone to it. The conversations feel natural and even ad-libbed perhaps, but the characters are talking about the things that really matter. Friendship, hurt, betrayal, hope, longing, fear, healing. And while learning very little about the details of key events, you do learn everything about the ways in which they feel impacted. Such outstanding performances. And for two hours, you are on a ship with Meryl Streep.
0: What's wrong with that? That's two Meryl Streep movies in one week. We did Prom last week, and that was good. Yes, yes. There cannot be enough. What do you awesome. have? Well, my first pick this week is a Netflix show. It's called Death to 2020. Saw it. The, this is. It's well, It's a mockumentary uh, of a look back at the hell that was last year. <laughs> it, it's a British production, and they show clips, and they analyze, and they lampoon what has been deemed one of the worst years in human history. This is an hysterical hour of television. Cameos by Sam Jackson, Hugh Grant, Tracy Ullman, Lisa Kudrow, Leslie Jones, and many others. Some folks you won't know, but they will crack you up. Now, it's no secret the Brits have a much thicker skin than we do about skewering sacred cows. (laughs) And they really have at it in this piece. It's Familiar sound bites from the news of the past year with funny interpretations and full blown snark by all the guest commentators. One of my favorites, Wheezy, was Hugh Grant.
1: I know. Uh, who so plays
0: this arch conservative <laughs> British history professor who is off the chain funny with all his conspiratorial commentary. Tracy Ullman plays Queen Elizabeth, who had me in tears. I kept thinking how much more fun the crown would be if she were the sovereign in the crown. Lisa Kudrow does a spectacularly spot-on Kellyanne Conway. It's perfect. I'm just praying this look-back becomes a yearly tradition on Netflix, and we'll do 2021 and on and on and on. It will be very therapeutic. I'm promising you to watch this as soon as you can. Did you like it?
1: Oh, I loved it. And so the first thing was like, this year, Fritzy, I was like, I'm not watching any retrospectives. I don't need to revisit any of this hellscape. But... This movie, <laughs> you're, at first you're like, wait, because they'll, they'll give the expert like, a, you know, like a lower third in the yeah. lower, in the lower corner. And you're like, mm-hmm. wait, and then you get it. Like, these are not actual people because the names no. they give the, the experts are hilarious. And then you, then you sort of recognize, oh, is that Tracy Allman? Like you start kind of thinking about it. I think you should watch it twice so that you want to grasp what the concept is. They're just oh, yeah. swinging for the bleachers on it. And that's, it's that's so point. well done.
0: I, I, I'll i tell you, I've, I've always respected the Brits going back to the Monty Python stuff. They used to, they used to slay the Pope. And I thought, wow, that would never fly in this country, but there are no sacred cows in Britain. And there are some pieces there from this kid that I don't know, but he's a wonderful actor about how the white community has tried to react to the Black Lives Matter, uh, era by overcompensating with their empathy for the black community. And it's really funny with a kid driving through town with a bullhorn. We're so sorry this is happening to you. And then they start yelling threats at him and he goes, drive, drive faster. No, it's an
1: actual dynamic. I listened to a podcast called Reply All and they had an episode about how white people were just randomly sending black people money via Venmo. And it was like, (laughs) It came up on some website like, here's what you could do if you're feeling badly about, you know, our like 300 years of systemic racism, you could send $10 to a black friend. And so <laughs> they interview black people that have randomly gotten money from a kid they went to college with. And it's just a
0: yeah, <laughs> strange it's, this it's thing. It's spectacular. Re- really, yeah. really well done. And Hugh Grant is, and Tracy Ullman is Queen Elizabeth Come on, man. That's worth the price of admission, right oh. there. What else do you have for us?
1: So you've heard of uh, Schitt's Creek?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I, a lot of people have heard of Schitt's Creek, but have not gone there, and or they've watched a little, and they've said, "I do not understand what's happening." So what your friends are probably telling you is, you know, you know, you have to commit to more of it. I'm telling you, I was like howling instantaneously because it's like a very stretched out sketch. So in the sitcom Schitt's Creek, a wealthy couple, video store magnate Johnny and his soap opera star wife Moira suddenly find themselves completely broke with only one remaining asset, a small town called Schitt's Creek, which they bought for laughs years earlier. This riches-to-rags couple and their two spoiled kids must face their newly-minted poverty head-on and learn and grow as humans and as a family. This is a brilliant piece of work starring Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Daniel Levy, and a cast of additional equally wonderful performers. The series allows actors with a background in sketch comedy to take characters and a premise beyond the sketch, building over time and creating story arcs and character development while exploring important themes results are entirely entertaining. People are saying, get past the first two episodes to get invested. I understand that if you are jarred by the severity of the characters initially, but I found it to be instantly entertaining.
0: You know, I I agree with everything you said, and it just always uh, took me back to Second City Television with stalwarts like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, which on any given week was infinitely funnier than Saturday Night Live yeah, because they were this organic unit that was so funny and played off one another so well. And that goes into this. But the beauty of this and the reason why I, I rooted for its success and you saw it borne out at the Emmy Awards because they won like 10 Emmy Awards mm-hmm. was that Dan, who was Eugene's son, is sort of the driving force behind the show and he's hysterical as his own character. It's really really one of the funniest shows on television and they didn't win those emmy awards until they had wrapped they that they were going to end their season so i'm just wondering if like public um enthusiasm may get them to restart the machine and do some more episodes because that'd be wonderful
1: well it's initially a uh the Canadian production that was sold to pop TV. So it wasn't widely available until it went on Netflix. And that's when everybody started discovering. It. And of course, you can, you can sequentially watch whatever the hell you want on Netflix. You can sit there in a, in a weekend and, you know, and consume the entire show and, miss, and catch up on what everybody else or everyone in Canada was already hip to. And so I think that's what Netflix really helped people gain access
0: yeah, I I loved it. I love your I love both of your picks this week. I'm going to see the Barry movie. Oh, I Street have movie. even one more. Oh, I know. I'll be back. I'm going to do one that we've both watched. Yeah, yeah. It's another documentary because you know we love us some documentaries. It's Billy. This is on Spectrum Video and on uh, uh, Prime Video. It's the story of arguably one of the greatest musical talents in the history of jazz and blues, Billy Holiday. And this film is two things. It's a really complete biography of Billy, and it's the story of this avid fan and journalist, Linda Lipnack Kuhl, who spent seven years in researching the life of Billy Holiday to do a book. Well, this author dies in 1978 under rather suspicious circumstances. She was found on a street in Washington, D.C. There was some mystery and controversy surrounding her death, but ultimately it was ruled a suicide. But Linda had over 100 hours of audio tape that she had recorded with Billy and the influential people in her life musicians and managers and childhood friends and lovers, even FBI agents. There are jazz greats like Count Basie, Charles Mingus, John Hammond, Joe Jones, Sylvia Sims. They could all be heard doing their take on Lady Day's life. Tony Bennett. Oh, Tony Bennett. Yes, when he was right before he was even famous. Right, he said it was at the start <laughs> of his career. Really spectacular. As a matter of fact, that's interesting, Weezy, because that really ties it to the present. And uh, amazing. Yeah. Anyway, Billy loved men, and she loved women, and she was tough and tender. She was a singer, but before that, as a child, she was a prostitute. It's moving, and it's disturbing. It's the talent and blemishes of this extraordinary energy force with no match in music, Billie Holiday. What what did you think? I was blown
1: away. Oh, it was so beautifully produced, and mm-hmm. they they have all of these cassette recordings that this young woman did. She was kind of devoted to this obsession of figuring out what it was that contributed to the the brilliance, the tortured brilliance of Billie Holiday, and she was well on her way. And then she just mysteriously dies in the '70s. So they have a beautiful way of stringing this all together: her story with the story of Lady Day, and how childhood trauma can lead to brilliance or if she was going to be brilliant anyway she seemed to be addicted to being abused which is extremely difficult to watch and and absorb that concept uh, without just wanting to run into the film and give her a big hug
0: cuz she's exactly just kept, right
1: she kept choosing men that that were horrible violent and
0: Because she didn't have a dad. Her her relationship was with her mom and there was such a poignant moment in there. And I can't remember the man's name, uh, but it was the sax player in her band. And whoever was doing the commentary at the time said, first of all, Billy fashioned her voice after Louis Armstrong. She wanted to make her voice sound like Louis Armstrong's coronet. And Mm -hmm. when you think about it, her riffs and her jamming is almost the same, but she said she, she loved this saxophone player because the sound of his sax reminded her of an embrace by her mother. Mm. And that just blew me away. And, and, and her mom was the primary force in her life. But it was, if you're a music fan at all and an appreciator of this woman, you, you will. she was complicated, but the research was amazing. As a matter of fact, this woman, Linda, the author the deceased author, was asking such amazing questions that it was really making some of the people uncomfortable about the questions she was asking. And that was part of the fun, not fun, but part of the interesting aspect of it, listening to these people. Well, if you say that, how are you going to say this and all this? And it was really, uh, it was wonderful.
1: She was a gifted journalist. The quest, I was going to mention that as well, Fritz. The questions that she asked were so perfect. And yeah. she followed a train of reason and logic. She didn't let anybody, you know, get away. She kind of followed up on everything, and she asked beautiful questions that were really thought provoking, and that that allowed people to perhaps share something that they would not have had they not felt heard. It was really, really interesting. It was this was a great movie.
0: Just from a business standpoint, I, I wonder who benefited from the final product. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, she owned the rights to the tapes, but the, the, the film was not of her making. So I, I hope that her family and her legacy will will take full benefit from all of her hard work, because that was a spectacular piece of work. She was obviously a huge fan. It wasn't a typical thing.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's a great piece of storytelling. And I love mm-hmm. when a story is told in a new and unique way. Mm-hmm. It just pu- pulls you in. It's like, a, like reading a mystery novel. Go ahead, dear. Oh, I'm going to talk about one more thing. Oh, okay, cool. And it's a movie on Disney called uh, Soul. Soul is a new animated film, which you will find on Disney Plus, having lost its opportunity to open wide in theaters. Joe is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. His true passion is jazz, and he's good. But when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what it means to have soul. Joe Gardner is a middle school teacher. He's on the verge of cracking into the big time jazz music scene when he tumbles down a manhole where his soul separates from his body and he's faced with some important life-altering decisions. He finds himself transported to the great before, the place where all souls go before being reincarnated as newborn babies. And as he struggles to reconnect with his body, he's matched with a so-called 22, who has spent eons attempting to avoid life on Earth? These two have much to learn from one another, and they do so after some good old-fashioned body-swapping antics and soul-searching. Soul features the voices of Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, among many great others, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Very well done.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Uh, and, and Soul has two meanings: Soul because the guy's a yes. you know a black musician, but also Soul in having a soul, which is yeah. And a lot of uh, people are very moved by it.
1: And uh, may I add, some of the best writing, some of the snappiest dialogue it can be found in animated features. Oh, yeah. So if you're kind of missing it because you don't currently have kids or grandkids and you have Disney Streaming Plus or whatever, just, just go check it out. It's There's some really, really great cinema uh, in
0: animation. Very cool. Well, I'm so happy to introduce our guest and our friend, David Laurel. David is a multitasker of the first order. He's a freelance journalist for the LA Times and the Burbank Leader and the Outlook and other places. He's a literary agent. He's helped launch many celebrity biographies and autobiographies. He was seated on the Burbank City Council. And between 2002 and 2003, he was the mayor of beautiful downtown Burbank. And that's where I got to know him as I made it a point to kiss the asses of the politically powerful in order to advance my own career. That's when I got to know David, my good friend, David Larell. David, welcome.
2: Hey, Fritz, how are you? Good to see you. Good to right. see you too, Easy. Good Thanks to for being you, David. here
0: today. Uh, you, you have in your collection, and, and you're sitting amongst the many of these items right now, one of the greatest collections, one of the greatest catalogs, of famous people that you have interviewed and befriended over the years from Bill Clinton to Hillary Clinton to Kathy Bates to Dick Cavett to Muhammad Ali to Carl Reiner. And I wanted to start with, God rest his soul, Alex Trebek, who just passed a couple of weeks ago. And I'll just seize this opportunity to ask you if you have any special reminiscences about Alex. He was a lovely man, one of the smartest people in show business.
2: Um, Boy, he sure was. What a, a class act. You know, I, um, for many years, for uh, 10 years, I was the uh, uh, editor-in-chief of a magazine called Life After 50. And as a matter of fact, we did a feature story on you, Fritz.
0: Right. I'm way <laughs> past that now.
2: <laughs> and um, so um, we, uh, we did a feature story. Actually, we did a cover story on Alex. And after he and I had spoken for a couple of times on the phone, I went out to the house, spoke with him. And he said to me, you know, you really should come into the studio when we do a taping. So you really kind of get a little bit of a better idea of how the show comes together. And uh, so they invited me out and they gave me carte blanche um, in the studio that day. As you, of course, both know, um, they they do show right one right after another, typically about five Mm -hmm. at least a day. And so in between shows, they take. Uh, a couple minutes for Alex to go and change and come right back and, and start doing another uh, show. And uh, they also do it in real time, live on tape, as they say. And it was funny because uh, Alex let me have the freedom to walk around the entire studio, speak to uh, staff members, speak to a uh, crew, speak to audience members. And he also let me bring a camera in, which is normally, uh, normally rather taboo in a, in a show like that. But he was fabulous. And between every commercial break, he always used to uh, look out into the audience and he'd go, now where's David right now? Where is he? And he goes, what are you <laughs> learning out there? Uh, and I remember at one point in time, he said, uh, he's doing a story on me for a, a magazine called Life After 50. And he said, yes, you will all be there someday. And I'm here to let you know that there is such a thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's adorable. Yeah, I, was a, I, I knew him. and uh, the. My last encounter with him, although we were part of a couple of different nonprofits together, was we both spent three hours in the Burbank AAA waiting to get new tags for our license plates. And I thought, here's this guy who's had unbelievable success in shows. I'm just a weatherman, so I deserve to sit for three hours in the AAA. But this guy, wouldn't you have somebody? Can't you have one of your minions come and sit for three hours in AAA? No. He's in there in a bad pair of shorts. We had a great conversation for three hours. He was a really down-to-earth, yet a brilliantly smart guy who I enjoyed knowing. It's true. Wheezy?
1: Oh well, we want to know about some of your other we're just, today today's going to be like showbiz story day. All right. So, I think you want to I one of the pictures that you sent me is a picture. I love I love celebrity pictures that that uh contain a collection of people that you didn't know would ever be within the same frame. And so it's a picture of you, Dick Cavett and Joe Namath. Please explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That picture is probably the most important picture um, I own, with the exception of one of me and the former mayor of Toluca Lake. Uh,
0: (laughs) Well, some things have no value. (laughs) uh,
2: And I'll tell you what, when I was very young, uh, when I was eight years old, uh, Joe Namath was uh, was my all-time hero. As I got a little bit older into my teens, Dick Cabot became my all-time hero along with Joe. And um, you know, I as a as a fifteen, sixteen, seventeen-year-old kid was not exactly the, the demographic that they were searching for on the old Dick Habit show, his ABC show, late night show. Um, and while I love Johnny, how do you not love Johnny? I was always more inclined to watch Cabot because I was fascinated with the people that he had on and also fa- fascinated in the way that he structured his, uh, his interviews with them and the questions that he asked. So um, as the years went by, I always, uh, always say that my, my life, my career has been about as Gump-esque, meaning as much like uh, I am a real life Forrest Gump than anyone you can imagine. And I've had the most fortunate thing happen to me in my life, and that is that these two men who meant the world to me growing up and influenced me in more ways than I will really ever know, um, went on to become good personal friends. And when I say good personal friends, I mean, I feel like we're family. I go and visit them and stay at their homes and we go out for dinner and I know Joe's kids and his grandkids and they, they feel like family to me. And when I go back east, I, uh, I stay with uh, Dick and his wife, Martha, and the stories that we have, I could go on and tell for time eternal and they would probably only really mean something to me and Dick. But um, it, it really is an, an amazing um, thing that has happened to me in my life that I have gotten to know both of these men. That picture, um, when Joe Namath's daughter got married, ironically, she got married at a church that was only a few miles away from a beautiful home that Dick has owned out on Montauk Point since the, uh, oh God, I guess, early 1960s. And um, and that picture was taken at a little uh, barbecue reception that. Uh, that uh, Joe and his ex-wife threw for uh, his daughter, Jessica, the day before the wedding. And so he said, you're staying with the Cavets, Please bring them out. And uh, it was was a wonderful thing. I'll tell you a really quick story. The the party got a little bit out of hand, a little bit loud, and uh, the Montauk residents were not exactly happy with the uh, noise going on. And they sent a patrol car up. And as soon as the patrol car came up, Um, Jessica the bride-to-be ran down the driveway and tried to explain and finally after not getting too far with it she uh, threw out the card of uh, you know my father is Joe Namath and it didn't seem to really resonate too well with this uh, 20-something officer (laughs) Um, and he said and she said and uh, you know we have so many important people here like Dick Cabot and the officer stepped back and he goes the Cabots are here and he said Fine, no problem. He obviously <laughs> wow. went over to all of the rest of the neighbors and said, you know, the cabots are involved with this thing, and all of the complaints stopped. And just so you know why, Dick was one of the people who made sure that all of this incredible property, hundreds of acres around the home that he owns out there, was never sold off to developers and made sure that for time eternal it was, uh, it was protected wildlife reserve.
0: Wow. Wow. As a matter of fact, over your left shoulder there at about the 8 o'clock position is Joe Namath's helmet from the Jets. Am I correct with that?
2: That That's correct. Yeah, nice. it's not mine. My my career with the Jets was uh, very limited. <laughs> now, yeah,
0: Harry- and now I love him because he's looking good doing Medicare commercials on television. So oh, things are funny. going well. for him yeah now, you know, how did you yeah.
1: meet how did you meet Joe Namath? Did you tell your friends that he was coming to your birthday party? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it uh, it's a story that has kind of gone down uh in in history with uh, uh a lot of my friends and Joe's friends. Uh, when uh, my grandfather and father were huge football fans, big New York Giants fans. And at the time this was in the, um, the early to mid-60s. The New York Jets were nothing, you know? I mean, uh, uh, not that they are anything today, but uh, they they were truly nothing. As a matter of fact, they were the New York Titans. People don't remember wow. them. But, um, but at the time, there was this harmonious conversion. They were just building this brand-new stadium, Shea Stadium, that was done as a part of the um, – the whole New York World's Fair of 1964-65. So they built Shea Stadium. The New York Jets were bringing bring bought brought over to this brand new sparkling stadium, and they changed their name to the New York Jets. And uh, and soon thereafter, they brought in this brash young quarterback from the University of Alabama. And of course, this was just sucking up all of the headlines in New York City. I grew up in New York as a kid. And so while my father and grandfather, like that other team who played at Yankee Stadium, I was obsessed with, uh, with Namath and the Jets. And so my grandfather got us tickets and we went to games. A Couple years in, um, when I was 10 years old, my father was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And so, of course, that's the worst thing that can happen to, uh, to a kid, especially when you're 10 years old. Um, and he was diagnosed in the early part of the summer of 1968, and it was a very bad summer for our family, and as fall came, the football season started. And as a 10-year-old kid, I started to direct my focus to what was happening with the New York Jets. And so it was kind of my um, my salvation away from what was happening in my real life. And they started winning games, and they won more games, and they won more games, and they ended up going to the playoffs and to the Super Bowl and won their one and only Super Bowl, um, of course, Super Bowl three. And so... As a matter of fact, Super Bowl three took place three weeks after my father passed away. So here was this horrible thing that happened. And yet now there was, you know, a reason to live to, um, to see the uh, next season for the New York Jets. That word got back to people at the New York Jets. And they were so kind and wonderful. And uh, they made sure that I, uh, I got to uh, meet some of the players, including Joe. And if you ever have the opportunity to get to meet Joe... Um, you'll understand this. He's, he's just a warm, wonderful, embracing person. And he has been throughout my entire life. I'll tell you a really quick story. He, he and a, um, a teammate, John Dockery, have, for many, many years ran a football uh, camp back East. And when I first heard about it, I was 15, and I saw an ad for it in the paper. And I said, to my mother, I'm going to go. I, I want to go to the Joe Namath football uh, camp. Now, my mother was not a fan of contact sports. Uh, she was a nursing supervisor and had seen too many injuries um, at the time. And so she um, she said, I think, hey, uh, how about I get you a set of weights for Christmas? And, you know, maybe you can, build, you can build up a little muscle and maybe next year. And what she basically was doing is she was doing that every year to, to um, age me out of camp. So one year, um, years later, I was uh, at Joe's house in Florida and it came up that they were still doing the camp and I had no idea he was still doing it. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. When I was a kid, I wanted to go to that camp so badly. And my mom just, I was not into it. And part of our conversation, we went on. I got back home to California and a couple days later, the phone rings and it's Joe. And we have our little conversation and small talk And out of the blue, he says to me, um, you know, when you were here, you mentioned that you always wanted to go to camp. And I said, yeah, I would have loved that. He said, well, it's not too late. We still do the camp. He goes, why don't you come and be my guest this year? Oh, my God. I said, really, Joe? And he said, I would love that. I ended up going and then went year after year after year after that. And not only had a wonderful time with Joe and his family, but I made some friends at that camp that have become some of my closest buddies in the whole world. And I guess I could, you know, sit here and, and go on and on for hours about mm-hmm. the things that Joe has done for me personally and the things that I have seen him do for other people that no one will ever know. And, uh, and it, to me, it's one of the greatest blessings and gifts in my life that I became friends with this person who I had such admiration for as a kid.
1: It kind of feels like your dad sent him to you.
2: Well, you know, wouldn't that be a wonderful mm-hmm. way to think about it? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think he was the first big television-era NFL star because of the Super Bowl and everything. I mean, there were, you know, uh, football stars such as they were before that Newt me and all the guys from college football and professional football pre-TV. But he was the first guy with this huge... Uh, presence because of the Super Bowl and all that television turned football into after that. Oh, well, especially. you
2: know, Fritz, I think also that, you know, that was back in the era where the athletes were the clean cut Johnny Unitas's and the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Mickey Mantis with the crew cuts. And here came Joe with the long sideburns and the long hair. And, you know, he uh, he was a rebel by all means. And um, not, not only that, but he had a brilliant publicist who was, he was really the first one to really get an athlete like Joe um, involved with doing commercials. And he did all of these famous commercials with Farrah Fawcett for Noxima And he did uh, commercials where he shaved off his mustache. And of course, he did the, uh, the, the commercial that people still talk to him about today, every time they uh, see him somewhere, which was a commercial for Beauty Missed pantyhose, And the whole theory behind the commercial, which was brilliant marketing, was Joe was wearing them, and the gist of the commercial was to pan up um, of his legs in the nylons. And then with Joe laughing, he said, now, I don't wear pantyhose, but <laughs> if they can make my legs look good, they can make anybody's legs look good.
0: Man. Well, you came out here to work for Dick Clark, and you had a great start in show business. Talk about that.
2: <laughs> well, you know, uh, Fritz, my, my background um, is all backwards. Uh, most people go from, um, go from the broadcast world into print. I did just the opposite. I had started out on radio like you did and then went into television and had worked at a uh, NBC affiliate in Fort Myers, Florida, then went on to uh, a PBS station in Arkansas, the Arkansas Educational Television Network. And um, then while I was at um, Arkansas Educational Television, I was offered the job with Dick Clark. And, uh, and came out, and boy, I'm telling you, that really was what uh, changed everything with me. Dick was, uh, I don't know, Fritz uh, Weezy, did either of you know Dick? Yes. Yeah. I, right. t- I mean, so you know, um, a, f- uh, a complex, um, interesting, dynamic individual. Um, I grew up as a kid, just like I'm sure you guys, watching American Bandstand, and it was com- a complete time warp to find myself now working um, at American Bandstand and being in that room as Dick was doing the, uh, the same, you know, countdown uh, of the top 10 that he did mm-hmm. when I was watching as a little kid in Brooklyn. And um, it was interesting because, you know, Dick was not the type of person to seek close relationships, especially with his staff, but, um, but I learned so much from him by working with him. And then years later, when I um, got involved with government and was serving on the city council, and as mayor of the city of Burbank, Dick's offices, of course, were in Burbank, right across the street from NBC. And I got to know Dick and uh, his wife Carrie on a on an entirely different level, because they um, they had parking issues. And you know, whenever <laughs> you need parking issues, you become very close with the mayor.
1: Yeah. It, oh, he, does that work? Go, does that man. work?
2: <laughs> it, it, it always works.
1: Got it. Good tip. So Dick Clark Productions did everything. Yeah. It, was he the first celebrity that had such a three hundred and sixty take on what you could do?
2: You know, easy, um, boy. You know, uh, you you think back of the uh, the people before him. Obviously, you know, Steve Allen had his hand into into so many different things. And there were others, but you know, people forget, Dick was the first person ever. And I don't know, you would have to do some research on this. Maybe he's the only person ever. He actually simultaneously hosted shows on all three of the major networks at the same time. So, you know, that's, that's something that you don't see much today. You know, uh, what's,
1: in- what's interesting is I'm flashing back to this encounter that I had with him at, at a convention where we were, you know, the, how they would have the convention floor and then they would have the suites at night. There'd be United Stations and, you know, Premier Radio and right. whatever. So he's in, he comes into the suite that I was in and I said, and I reminded him that we worked together on the weekly top 40. And he, we were in a different suite and he leans over and he said, you don't talk about that in this suite. So maybe he just knew how to keep relationships kind of separate so that everybody felt important and there wasn't kind of any bleed.
2: Yeah. He, um, like I said, he was a very complex person. And the reason I I say that is because the um, most people who watch Dick on television, whether it be on uh, American Bandstand or uh, bloopers and practical jokes, um, he came across as this wonderful, friendly guy. And he, he was that, of course. But in the real world, he was a, a, a pretty down and dirty, cutthroat business person. And you have to be in the entertainment business, especially, um, you know, when you're dealing in, in music and film and television, as he was. And, um, and you know, if there's one thing that I learned from, uh, from Dick, it was this, and I've used this in so many elements of my career, especially in, in magazine publishing over the years. And that was that if, you know, anyone could produce a, uh, any major television production could produce an award show. But Dick figured out a way to do it that it looked better than anyone else could do it at a quarter, a fraction of the price. And uh, of course, because of that, he got a reputation of being kind of, uh, you know, close with, uh, with, with the money that he spent and he was, but uh, it was, it was just a matter of of realizing that every dime meant something. And if you were a production company and you were spending, thousands of dollars on craft service. Maybe you weren't utilizing your money in the place that it was, uh, it, it was going to be best noticed in the final product.
1: Well, I will and- interrupt you by telling you that when covering Dick Clark events, yeah, we would order pizza. We'd be backstage for six, eight hours, zero food, zero water. And we would just order pizza and send someone out to the parking lot to, to meet the guy. Cause there, there were no cell phones, but that's what you did. You just learned, you know, this is a Dick Clark production. We're not going to be getting fed. Pack of lunch.
2: Well, I'll tell you a really quick little <laughs> story. And I'm telling a story out of school here, but um, wherever Dick is, I'm sure he would get a, a laugh out of this. Do you remember the show Putting on the Hits with Alan Fawcett?
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. oh my That was goodness. fun. Yeah. You and
2: me, you and me and Alan. <laughs> I love uh, stuff like that. Well, anyway, you know, Dick was the executive producer of that show. And we would bring contestants in from all over the United States. And as I was saying before with Jeopardy, we would do the whole season in a matter of two weeks because we did five in the morning and five in the afternoon. And as contestants were eliminated from the show, they would then be sent home. And everyone was kept in holding on a stage uh, at Paramount. I'm sorry. We did that at Universal. And <laughs> every day, they, uh, they were free in the evenings to go out and have dinner wherever they want. But they were uh, held captive uh, in a stage during the day while we were taping the shows. And um, unlike any other production that would have catering come in, Dick would go out and never even gave anybody a choice. If you were vegetarian or, or whatever, he would go out, they would go out and they would get um, Kentucky Fried Chicken box three-piece lunches for everybody and they cost, <laughs> they cost $4.95. <laughs> and to make it worse, they had a production assistant who would go around to all the contestants and collect $5 from them to no. pay for their own lunch. And the thing about that that I always felt was the kicker of the story is they made five cents on each one.
0: Wow. <laughs> well, you know, he, and uh, I, I have a great Dick Clark story. Uh, The thing that he mastered, going back to uh, American Bandstand, was the trait that they felt was cosmically transmitted into Ryan Seacrest, is that he offended nobody on television. He was acceptable to the broadest swath of humanity. Everybody liked him because he had this warm Broadcast delivery and warm persona, and and Ryan has very much the same thing.
2: And for thirty nine years at uh, at CNBC in Los Angeles, you did the exact same thing, Fritz.
0: At a slightly different tax bracket, but thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> but I'll tell you the Dick Clark story, and you know this better than I do. He 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 inserted himself in every aspect of his product. Oh yeah. So they produced bloopers and practical jokes down on stage three, which was next to the Johnny Carson stage, because Ed McMahon was one of the co-hosts of that show. And one day I'm coming up into the newsroom after the five o'clock news, and uh, I hear the page, of uh, us call him a Dick Clark on line five or Dick Clark. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's he want? Maybe he wants, you know, many times producers would call me and want weather for location shoots, and I would do that. But Dick Clark was a big deal. So I went back to my desk and took the call it was Dick Clark and he goes, you know, the other day you were on TV and you were doing the weather and you were standing in front of a picture on the green screen, one of those fixed position cameras that aimed at downtown LA and this giant bird came and sat on the lens of that picture and you said it looked like a pterodactyl. And uh, that cracked me up. He said, do you mind if I use that on bloopers and practical jokes? I said, heck no, I don't mind. That was awesome. But Dick Clark called me himself to ask me if he could use my clip for bloopers and practical jokes. Of course, I didn't get permission from the station, and they went ahead and used it, but that was my claim to fame. It was a five-second video of a giant, I got no pay for nothing. Did you get permission from the bird? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He signed a non-disclosure agreement. And-
2: well, you know what, Fritz? I'll tell you something. And you know, this goes back to the lesson that I learned from Dick about, uh, you know, especially if you're doing a magazine and you have a limited budget. How can you make it look as great as possible on a limited budget? And I always thought, what would Dick Clark do? Uh-huh. Uh, but I'll tell you uh-huh. about. I'll tell you about um, when we did bloopers and practical jokes on Stage Three at NBC. Uh, you know, every time Dick would have to lease out that studio from NBC facilities, it would cost him a fortune. Um, he had to have a lighting grid mm-hmm. uh, put up, the set brought in, everything, all the camera set. So here's a little thing that people never knew, but it's the brilliance of Dick Clark. Dick only leased the studio out once per season. So if you, if you, we would do the very first one with Ed. And he'd have a studio audience in there. That was it. From that point on, they would just bring in a very small piece of the set. Dick and Ed, if you ever noticed, wore the same suits and ties throughout the whole thing. They would bring. They would always come over to the uh, to the uh, office, which, of course, we were right across the street from NBC. They would get fifty staff people all sitting in the first three rows. And it made for a cutaway. And it made it look like Dick and Ed were doing all of their (laughs) cut-ins. And then, of course, they would throw it to the videos. There was no one else in the audience except us staff members. And the wide shots were all from just that one time that they actually used the studio with an audience.
0: That's really great. Well, Bob Hope did a similar thing. And you know this because this happened while you were the mayor of Burbank. He would go into The Tonight Show and they would go into the stage Uh, on a Friday afternoon and at the end of the show, when Johnny's show had wrapped, uh, somebody would come out on the stage, one of Dick's, uh, uh, you know, Grant, uh, what was his name? You knew him. Yeah, sure. Uh, Grant was his man. And he said, we have a great surprise for you. If you're willing to stay, we'd love you to stay. Uh, We're going to have Bob Hope come out and he's going to do his monologue for his next Christmas special. And we'd love you to hear these jokes and react to it and everything. And the audience went nuts because they're getting this special treat. So, Hope didn't have to bring his own audience in. They rolled out these cue cards which were the size of billboards you know he had these with with printing like <laughs> two feet high and he would do a half hour monologue that they would edit down in the Christmas special to six or seven minutes just as an add-on to the Johnny Carson show. So Bob Hope, as you probably know better than I was was a was a, a frugal man as well with the expenses. it was so funny.
2: Uh, hey, Fritz, by the way, while we're talking about NBC, um, the very first time I ever met you was in the hallway of, um, of NBC. You are running through the hallway going over to the uh, to the studio. And um, I'm going to bring up two names that uh, will not mean much probably to anyone other than you and me. But you, of course, remember Sandra Willis.
0: Absolutely. She was the head of press and publicity or community affairs for NBC for many years.
2: She was. When I worked at the NBC affiliate in, uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, I had gotten to, uh, to know Sandra. And then when I came out here, she said, oh, we've got to get together. And she and I became friends. And she knew I was working for Dick Clark. And I told her I had all of these uh, great ideas about what I wanted to do and be in my career. And she said, you know, there's a guy you should meet. And uh, I said, OK, he said he, he works in the building right across the street from us, the old Catalina building. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went over to meet this guy who she recommended that I go and meet. And his name was Frank Neumeister.
0: Oh, yes, I remember Frank. Frank and, and, worked at NBC for like 50 years. Had exactly. an astonishing career.
2: He knew every nook and cranny of that building. And so he brought me on a full tour through all the studios and uh, and all the production facilities. And as we were walking out of the Tonight Show studio, he said to me, yeah, uh, you know, you know, know. this is where they used to do Laugh-In, and this is where they used to do the Gong Show. And just as he was telling me what else they used to do, Fritz Coleman walks down the hallway, and that was the first time... I ever saw you in the flesh long before you ever became the, uh, the the mayor of Toluca Lake.
0: That was one of the most important days in your life, David. What a you banner can, day.
2: You can tell I remember every nuance.
0: I now, love that building. That building was like a museum of broadcasting, just oh, walking yeah. through there.
2: Now,
1: let me get something straight. You were the actual mayor of Burbank, and, and Fritz, you were the honorary mayor of Toluca Lake. Explain right. to our <laughs> listeners, what is the difference between actual and honorary politics?
0: Well, he got—let he, 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 me let me brag about you, David, so you don't have to be forced into it. <laughs> uh, Burbank City Council has a rotating councilship where every two years, another council member automatically becomes the mayor. And David Ooh. had been a city council person. Uh, and and he had to be elected, and he ran. And I remember driving down Olive Avenue and seeing David Laurel uh, lawn signs for his election— Back there. And so he was very famous within the confines of Burbank. And what made him famous was not only his show business career, but because he was involved in politics. The difference with me is my job was an unelected position. I've been the honorary mayor of Toluca Lake for 25 years. And what you do is you just go until you cause embarrassment for the community, and then they'll replace you. There's no pay. There's no election involved. I can't even get a parking ticket fixed as the honorary mayor of Toluca Lake. He's a real mayor. I'm a fake one.
1: So, Fritz, you are you remain uncontested honorary mayor. Are, Absolutely. There, has anyone else vied for the for the seat?
0: No. People have been asked that they refused the job, and they, and they gave it to me. Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one time you told me that um, that you uh, you felt that the pressures of uh, of holding <laughs> that that office um, were sometimes something that kept you awake at night. I believe you wanted, <laughs> you one time told me that you felt that you had the the power equal to that of Paul, the uh, the king of big screens.
0: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it, my only responsibility as the honorary mayor of Toluca Lake was on the first Friday of every December, I would light the monstrous five-foot Toluca Lake Christmas tree in front of Ramsey Schilling Real Estate, thus beginning the holiday season along Riverside go. Drive. That was my only job. Well, you, know- you were are an actual mayor. And, and I'll tell you. I, I and I, you can talk about the, the the politics in Burbank because it's an industry town. It used to be a, an aerospace town. Some very complicated politics in that town, and you had to tap dance around a lot of issues when you were in.
2: You know, Burbank is and has been a incredibly unique little city. And I say little city because people throughout the United States and even the world um, are surprised when they hear it's a little city. You know, it's uh, when I was mayor, there was only about 103,000 residents, uh, about uh, 38,000 private homes, you know, um, 17 square miles. I mean, it's a very small city. And yet within the borders, were you know uh, NBC flagship uh, West Coast, and uh, at the time, uh, Black Entertainment Television, still a Cartoon Network, and Nickelodeon, and Yahoo, uh, Warner Brothers, AOL. So here were all of these companies that had tentacles out um, in every you know corner of the globe. And, uh, and they were all funneling tax dollars into the city of Burbank. So when I would go to other places in both the United States or even overseas, and they would ask me, what's the secret about how Burbank can be 12 miles as the bird flies from the second largest city in the United States? And yet, you don't seem to have the problems that Los Angeles does. And I um, would always say, well, you know, it has a lot to do with having a very small, manageable city with uh, a a tremendous uh, tax base.
0: But it's an independent uh, uh, municipality. It's got its own power company, its own DWP, its own police department, and its own school district, right? So there's all the juggling that went on. I mean, I'm saying this because I don't want to underestimate uh, it wasn't a, my job is completely ceremonial. Some people don't even know I'm the honorary mayor and I have been for 25 years. But yours was an honest to goodness, um, often complicated political job. I just knew of all the all the drama that took place in city council and all those things. And you've got all these media companies who are vying for your attention and want special treatment. You had the Burbank Airport, which was expanding and all those things that were going on. So it was an interesting time. If you're yeah.
1: shopping for great schools. Go to Burbank. Oh, yeah, Burroughs
0: High School. Some of the most talented kids.
1: There are great schools in Burbank, and they get the benefit of being in the heart of show business.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Wheezy, let me tell you something. Um, uh, There were many reasons why Fritz was the honorary mayor of Toluca Lake uh, that he's not fessing up to. Spill. And. That has to do with the fact that whether it was from Glendale or whether it was from Burbank or Toluca Lake or other parts of the um, uh, of Los Angeles County, um, it was amazing. Of how Fritz gave so freely and so generously and in a heartfelt way of his time to so many charities. I mean in the city of Burbank, whether I list off a family service agency or if I list off the Boys and Girls Club of Burbank, if I list off you know the Burbank Temporary Aid Center, I cannot come up with a nonprofit organization in the city of Burbank that Fritz was not always a hundred percent behind and always willing to get out there and host an event and be a part of their event. And you know the best part about it is so many times when you have a celebrity come in and they're hosting an event, they show up, they go over their script and they're gone. Uh, that wasn't Fritz. Fritz was approachable and people loved coming up to you, Fritz, and taking pictures with you and telling stories. And there's no non there's no nonprofit in this city. And all the people who have benefited from it, who somewhere along the line don't have the fingerprints of Fritz Coleman on the fact that their life is a better life.
0: Well, I'm I'm going to stop you right there because I'm so embarrassed. But I I I love
1: that. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that Fritz is he's uniquely gifted at this. He knows it. And he's someone who wants to give back. He wants to play to his strength, which is hosting these events. And so he's responsible for a lot of money being raised in the greater Los Angeles area.
0: Well, I'm so glad I invited you two here today for this love fest. Now, before we I finish. want to tell you, I just have to I have to respond to what he said, because he was very kind to me. Uh, I, I I often said that the community outreach aspect of my job was the best part of my job at NBC. And I always told people that on the personal satisfaction scale, doing all those things was much more soulfully satisfying than being inaccurate about the weather four out of five days a week. So I can put my head down on the pillow at night and rest.
1: Well, I want to talk about journalism for a moment before we mm-hmm. wrap up the show, because you, you're a wonderful writer, David, and you, you just wrote a piece about Fritz and, uh, and me and our podcast, Path, which we read, and it's going to go in, into the, the Burbank leader, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to know what your take is on the future of local journalism, if, if there is a future and if funding is a problem or if our, our attention span is so diverted at this point that we can you know, fine tune what we read and consume during a day and it's, that doesn't include our local paper or are people still keenly interested in the local journalism of the town within, within which they live?
2: sure and you know we see i i wish i had the answers to those questions um but here's what i guess i can say uh, as fritz alluded to earlier the burbank leader as a part under the umbrella of what was called times community news was owned by the la times for many years and the la times decided that they were going to uh, discontinue a lot of their local community newspapers earlier um, in last year now in 2020 and um when they did um, a, a newspaper group based out of La of Flintridge bought the LA times, the I'm sorry the uh, Burbank Leader and the Glendale News Press and kept them going and i will tell you that in that interregnum period between the time that the leader decided the times decided they were no longer going to do the leader and then when it was picked up and saved by the outlook uh, newspaper group Boy, I heard from people, my phone has never rang off the hook so much of what can we do? How are we going to get local news? I think people really are so hungry for local news. They they want to know what's going on in their own community. They want to know what's going on. With, uh, with their city council, with their local police departments, with uh, any crime in their area, with the good things that are happening in their area, stories about their, their friends, uh, stories about the schools. I will tell you, people love the sports when it has to uh, do with uh, all of the local teams, whether it be Burbank High School or Burroughs High School. So I think that there is always gonna be a real true need for uh, a local publication, whether or not that's actually something that you hold on to and read. Um, That I don't know, but, um, you know, you you
0: put your finger on exactly the dilemma that local television news is having right now. David, unfortunately, print media is a little farther down the dark tunnel of unknowing that that broadcast news is. I mean, you look at the L.A. Times, the Monday morning edition is like five pages long, but local news is is having a difficult time. And and you described it perfectly. There will always be an appetite and a desire and a need for local information, local politics, local school board issues, local infrastructure discussions. The question is the delivery system. How mm-hmm. are people going to get this information? Yeah. Uh, local news may end up being a podcast uh, or, you know, an online streaming service. We just don't know because streaming television is pushing the envelope with broadcast television because they don't have to deal with commercials. And so how are we going to adapt to streaming and still remain viable? Because prime time is the big moneymaker for... So you put your finger on it. We're just not as far down that dark tunnel that print media is, but it's a dilemma for all of us in local news dissemination.
2: And, you know, we really don't know um, how much the new generation, I hate to sound so ancient, but uh, I'm ancient, uh, you know, do uh, do 30-year-olds, do 20-year-olds, um, yes, they may have an interest in what's going on in their community, but do they have an interest um, in anything longer than a tweet um, or longer than anything that they can pick up as far as uh, information on, on social media? Uh, are they willing to sit and read an entire feature story? I, I don't know. I uh, I would hope so, and I would have to also um, hope that there's always going to be the segment of the population that is interested in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, I, I uh, there. I'll I'll make one further comment about this because this is something that's very close to my heart. What you're talking about, and I agree with everything you're saying. The difference is w- when you and I and Weezy were growing up media was a seller's market you had three networks you had walter cronkite you had huntley brinkley and whoever the guy was on the other channel and people had to come to them for information now it's a buyer's market the consumer controls the circumstances because of digital communication because of social media because of the internet and what this has given birth to is uh, generations, Gen Y, Gen X, of consumers of information who have vertical learning. That means, here's a real simple uh, example of that. If you're interested in skateboarding, and that's your passion, you read and consume a lot of information about skateboarding. So you might be the most knowledgeable person in your neighborhood about skateboarding, where you have little or no knowledge about other issues. When we were watching the news, Huntley Brinkley or Walter Cronkite, you got 30 minutes of a smattering of everything from culture to international politics to global uh, money issues, whatever that was. You were sort of forced to consume a little bit of information about everything. Now, you, it's a buyer's market. You can only learn about what you want to learn about. So mm-hmm. you have vertical information about stuff. So the problem is, how does a democracy continue if people only know a lot of information about a narrow area of interest? Kids don't have to expose themselves to politics from both sides of the spectrum. Kids don't have to become aware of, of uh, school board issues or, or state politics. If they're not interested in it, they can avoid that topic completely. So the interesting thing about the future of broadcasting and the future of print journalism is are we going to have an informed electorate you know well, what i they mean they can
1: they can just just as easily they can barricade an ideology so you know as a, as much as everything's available to you only only one narrow pathway is also available to you it's all up to you so if you want to just right. kind of streamline it to like you know this is just i'm sticking to this path and i'm not going to be distracted by people that's fake news or do i want to know as much as possible about as much as possible there's just different types of people and some people only feel safe within the confines of their belief but that's structure.
0: dangerous because sometimes you is. have to learn things. no that's what i say yeah. uh, when i say it's a buyer's market wheezy you're controlling the circumstances which is very dangerous you know i, you I create.
2: Know. you totally you totally create your own universe and you know i was talking to someone about this a while back and I was, um, I was blown away, I was talking to my wife's niece who was a film school graduate, and I was blown away shocked um, of who she did not know. Uh, I mean, Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers. And, and I mean, I was just amazed at what, what are they teaching in film school? Mm-hmm. And, and what I really basically have have learned from younger generation is that they don't need to know anything because anything they need to know is something that they need to know right at the moment. They look it up on their phone. They get the answer for when they need it, and then they can forget about it again because they don't need to know that again unless they're ever uh, questioned about that again in somewhere in the future. So there's no need for institutional knowledge when you have a device in your pocket that tells you anything you need to know at any given exactly. Yeah, it's really exactly. it's really interesting.
1: If you if you needed to know the weather. You turned down the news and you sat through some news and you hopefully absorbed some news on your way to the weather. Now you can simply pick up your phone. It tells you the temperature. That's what I do. People come up to me
0: like Bob's big boy and say, what's the weather? I say, look on your phone. I I have a beard. Do I look employed to you? Look on your phone.
1: But the (laughs) other thing is that makes it even more insidiously dangerous is that the internet and the technology is smart enough to listen to you and to reverberate what you're what it is you're you're saying that you're interested in it wants your it wants your eyes and ears for as much time as possible so if you're clicking this way and this way and this way it's like saying oh she likes this let's send her more of that and then thus you know subtracting the likelihood that you're going to go elsewhere to expand your right. Right. your your width of knowledge so yeah the internet is kind of encouraging us to stay in, increasingly insular so
2: well, very yeah. few people, unfortunately, are talking about this kind of thing, and you guys are. And you're doing a tremendous service. You're both the perfect people to be doing this, and uh, uh, I'm grateful for uh, what it is that you're doing, and I hope that uh, an awful lot of people start tuning in and that you have great success with this um, this program, because you're, uh, you're giving people a lot of things to think about that I don't think that they would normally other be wise thinking about.
1: Well, before well, David, we, we appreciate close, your David... Support. Uh, yeah, we really do appreciate those kind words. And before we close, you know, you, you describe your life as being gumpesque, and I would love to hear you tell one story where you really did look up and and say to yourself, "I cannot believe I am here right now."
2: Yeah, um, well, believe me, that has happened so many times in my life that um, that I, I can't even begin to um pick one but i will and uh, <laughs> the reason why i will pick one is because um fritz and i have um um have had a mutual brush with greatness as uh, as i believe mr oh, Latter- i mr. think
1: i know Marvel. where you're going
2: and uh, yeah. that is that we uh we both cross paths with the legendary marlon brando Oh and, yes. <laughs> uh, and someday uh fritz you got to tell this story but um i will tell you that i uh, i got to meet um uh uh, Brando twice. Once through Dick Habit, and the second time through a grizzled old PR guy named Hal Bender at NBC. And I was only a kid, and um, I have a really lengthy, long story about my whole meeting with Brando that I won't go into. But um, at the, the it, this took place at uh, at Thirty Rock back in New York, and as Brando was leaving the um, the building, um, I uh, happened to, and I say happened to, uh, get on the elevator with him, and. Of course, an elevator is a small, dimly lit area. And (laughs) he was in one corner and I was in the other. And I remember standing there looking at his face and I was thinking... Um, with only air between us in a small little elevator, uh, a <laughs> man who played Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar Named Desire, Vito Corleone in The Godfather, Paul in Last Tango in Paris, Jarrell and Superman. I mean, he's standing right there. And at that point in time, I, uh, I think that I was in, a, in a, another place that I never thought I would ever find myself in.
1: Did you speak to him?
2: Oh, are you kidding? I have a whole long story. We'll have to do another show on.
1: Well, let's. Well, we can do another stove, uh, another show with your Brando story, Zoom, but I think I'll Fritz needs back. to tell his Brando story because it's just.
0: Oh, I, you know, I, I, why not? Okay, I'll tell. Yeah, it. I uh, like it a lot. <laughs> uh, I had done my first one person show. Uh, it's me, Dad. I had workshopped for a year at a little equity waiver theater in North Hollywood called Actors Forum. And ultimately, public television, local public television, KCET, bought the show to air it. And they produced it and they built a set for it down on their public television stage. And it was wonderful. And they used it as a fundraiser. And so the show's about an hour and a half. And we did the fundraising breaks. I had Chuck Henry and Kelly Lang come over and do the fundraising breaks. And this went from like 9 to 11 o'clock at night. And I got home that night completely exhausted and just sort of Surfing on this experience of having had a piece of my work on public television, and I got a phone call at like eleven forty-five, and it was—did you know Bodan Zachary, the producer from uh, PBS, David, at all? He no. was their in-house executive producer. So he calls me up and said, uh, "Write this phone number down." I said, "Okay." I wrote the phone number down. He said, "I want you to call right now." I said, "It's ten minutes to twelve at night." He said, "Call." it's Marlon Brando, and he wants to talk to you. And so I had caca pants, and I changed my (laughs) pants, and then I I called Marlon Brando, and all the same rush of thoughts came through my mind. Fortunately, I only had about 30 seconds to get really nervous, because if I had to think about this for a night, I probably would have never called him. And this was at a point in his life, I think it was kind of close to the end of his death, actually, but you know, he he had become the 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 brunt of jokes about his weight and about his mental health and everything. And so I didn't know what to expect, quite honestly. And I uh I Mr. Brando, it's Fritz Coleman. He goes, I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed your show and how thoughtful it was and how poignant it was, and what a great piece about fatherhood and alcoholism and all these things. He said, I just wanted to thank you. And then he said, where did you workshop the play? Did you take it on the road? And did you ever do it in large theaters? Then he started talking about doing all the out-of-town tryouts for Streetcar Named Desire and how Tennessee Williams would come in with new sides every night and not everybody could memorize lines fast enough. I had about a half-hour spectacular conversation with one of the great actors of all time. No indication of any of these punchlines that he had accumulated over the last little while of being off his rocker. He was a quirky guy because he was so insanely talented. As you know, David, he didn't suffer fools well. So I think that Whoa. was part of his reputation. That's part of my story. He, yeah, he he couldn't, uh, he could not have been nicer. And it was, I, I kept his phone number in my handwritten phone book for many, many years. I no longer have it, but... Uh it was uh it was a very meaningful moment to me. He was really really we didn't talk about him. He wanted to know about me and the work process and how I wrote it and how it came into being and where we did it. It was it was amazing.
1: Ah, oh, I love that story. Well, David, you're going to have to come back with your Brando story and more stories because we've really <coughs> loved having you with us. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPath Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at podcast at gmail.com. I want to thank our wonderful guest, David Laurel. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Alex Gilroy, and you. I am Louise Polanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path.